Luke 1, verses 26 to 55. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Whoops. So I am part of a Facebook group of worship planners and leaders and pastors, people who like to think about worship. There are about 5,000 of us in this group from all different denominations and all different countries. 
Mostly we talk about and we share music that people are listening to or doing in their churches or have written. And every Advent, without fail, controversy surfaces. You can count on it with the same confidence that you can count on people not driving the speed limit on Highway 6. It crops up every year around the first week of December, sending liturgists deep down linguistic and theological rabbit holes, running to their corners, circling the wagons, hunkering down with the folks who share their opinion. Books will be written about this controversy. We may need to hold a council of scholars to decide once and for all what the answer to this is. And what is this great controversy? Well, it revolves around a question and how one answers that question. And the question is simply this. Mary, did you know? I am, of course, talking about the beloved Christmas song made most recently epic by Pentatonix. And the song asks Mary all sorts of questions, right? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Etc., etc. Now, some think that this song is the height of hubris, as evidenced by these memes right? The argument being that, yes, of course, Mary knew. An angel told her about it in Luke chapter 1, and then she sang her own song about it. Now, I think that this particular controversy, like most controversies, has a more nuanced answer to it. I'm sure Mary did not know all of the particulars that the question asks. She probably did not know that her child would one day walk on water or heal the blind or feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. But she certainly knew that her child would be different. The angel tells her that this child will be the son of God. When she visits her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth greets her by calling Mary the mother of my Lord. So yes, maybe Mary did not know everything, but we could probably stand to give Mary a bit more credit than we usually do. If you look at almost any painting of the Annunciation, that's the fancy Latin term for the angel's announcement to Mary, Mary is the picture of domesticity and passivity. She's almost always seated, her head slightly bowed, eyes demurely cast on the floor. Her arms are either crossed over her chest or outstretched in wonder. And when we look at these paintings like this one, maybe the most famous painting by Fra Angelico in the 15th century, it's easy to see in Mary only a demure woman who answers the angel very quietly, let it be to me as the Lord has said. But this is a small picture of Mary. This misses the fullness of Mary as a person, as a young girl, as a betrothed woman, and as a prophet. Because Mary has all of the markings in this text of a prophet. Alice McKenzie, a professor at the Perkins School of Theology, says that there are five stages of a prophet's call. The call, the task, the objection, the reassurance, and the acceptance. 
And we see all five of these stages in Mary's story. So we don't know much about Mary. We know she lived in Nazareth. We know she was engaged to a man named Joseph, who as a descendant of David was probably a pretty religious man. Mary was likely a young teenager, as many brides were in those days. And one day, an angel shows up at her front door and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now Mary doesn't run and hide at his appearance, nor does she slam the door in the angel's face. Her response is one we have all had. With eyebrows raised, she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now think of those moments in your life. Someone walks into your office at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon with a stack of papers and says, hey there, best friend, have I ever told you how great you are? And you pull out your phone and cancel your dinner plans. Or you get a phone call from your child's teacher at school who opens with, hi, Mrs. McGregor, I just wanted to chat with you about Bobby. These are greetings that call you into something. Something has happened or is about to happen, and you might not know entirely what's going on, but you know that you're going to be a part of it. You wonder what kind of greeting this might be. So too with the words of the angel. Mary doesn't know what is about to happen, but in these strange words of greeting from an angel, she is being called into something. She finds out what that something is in short order. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's just a small task, no big deal. You will give birth to the Son of God who will reign forever. Small potatoes. And here's what I love about Mary's response, about her objection, which is the next phase of the prophet's call. She doesn't say to the angel, I'm sorry, the Son of the Most High, God is going to do this. God is choosing me for this. Exactly how did I find favor with God? Her objection is utterly practical. How will this be since I am a virgin? Who am I conceiving this child by? How is this going to happen? And I, I wonder if she's also trying to express that because she is a virgin, she's also not a logical choice to raise the Son of God. You might want to rethink this, Mr. Angel. I have no experience with child raising. Maybe you want to entrust the Son of God with someone who has done this a time or two. But as God does with every biblical character who has ever tried to protest, he rejects Mary's objection and reassures her that this is all possible. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And with these words, Mary accepts her calling. I am the Lord's servant, she says. May your word to me be fulfilled. I'm 
in. Mary accepts her calling. She goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who is as old as Mary is young. Both their pregnancies are preposterous, and yet they fall into each other's arms, never doubting the truth of what God has told them both and of what they now see in each other. And in exuberance, Mary bursts into song, into her Magnificat. She sings a song of God who does wondrous things, who performs mighty deeds, who upends the ways of the world, who gives children to virgins and aged women. She sings a song of God who lifts up those who are lowly and downtrodden and forgotten about and brings down those who would seek to keep them there. She sings of God who makes the hungry, hungry for food, hungry for love, hungry for belonging. God makes the hungry to be full and sends away with empty arms the ones who take and take and take and never give. She sings of God who remembers his promises and his people and is faithful. Mary is a prophet singing the promises of God. But in this calling to be a prophet, to be the mother of God, to bear witness to the truth of God's faithfulness, she is also the one who already is experiencing that which she sings about. You'll notice that Mary's song is sung in the past tense. She sings of what God has done, not what he will do. And we would expect that future tense, that future orientation from a prophecy. But by using the past tense, Mary is situating herself as a continuation of the never-ending faithfulness of God. The pastor David Lowes writes this, Mary recognizes as she sings that she has already been drawn into relationship with the God of Israel, the one who has been siding with the oppressed since the days of Egypt, and who has been making and keeping promises since the time of Abraham. The past tense in this case doesn't so much signify that everything Mary sings about has been accomplished, but rather that Mary is now included in God's history of redemption. And so Mary's Magnificat is the song of the ages. Mary's Magnificat is the Magnificat of Miriam, who with her stuttering brother Moses and power-hungry brother Aaron led an entire people across the Red Sea. Mary's Magnificat is the Magnificat of Hannah, given a son after so many years of waiting, and whose name in the Hebrew translates to the same as the Greek for favored one. Mary's Magnificat is the Magnificat of Naomi, destitute and bereaved and then brought back to life through the love and rule-breaking audacity of Ruth. And Mary's Magnificat is Eve's answer. Eve, the mother of all humanity, 
but also, according to Paul, the vessel through whom sin entered the world. Her cries are answered in Mary's song. For Mary would be the vessel by which salvation entered the whole world. God is in the business of using the lowly, the outcast, the forgotten about, the shouldn't be considered people to be the vessels through which his promises come to be true in the world. And so God upends all of our expectations about what power and might and success and victory look like. So C.S. Lewis once said that this song of Mary's, her Magnificat, is a terrible song. And he's playing on the Latin word terribilis, sorry for my pronunciation, which means frightful, earth-shattering, and fearsome. This is a song that shakes the foundations of everything we know. Here is a young girl saying that God is up to something so incredibly new that everything we thought was normal about the world will be turned upside down. Lewis wrote his own terrible song, his own song of the upending of things in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. After Edmund meets the White Witch and eats his fill of Turkish delight, he goes back to get the rest of his siblings, having promised the White Witch that he would take them all to her. So all four Pevensey children are now in Narnia, but before Edmund can do anything, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who take them to their lodge for a delicious meal. And it's here that the children learn about Aslan. He'll put all to rights, says Mr. Beaver, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is... Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mary's song sings of a king who isn't safe. He doesn't protect the status quo. His aim is not for people to be comfortable and at ease. For those who pad their own pockets at the expense of others, who seek power and control instead of justice and peace, God will upend their world. He is not safe, but he is good. He will upend the world, not for some penchant for chaos, but so the world might be as it is meant to be. A place where all people have dignity and community and love. A place where there is no hierarchy of belonging. A place where no one is forgotten. And so in this season of Advent, this season in which we tell God's story of redemption, and we look forward to the day when wrong shall be made fully right, are we willing to sing a terrible song? Do our lives bear witness to the truth of a God who lifts up the lowly and scatters the proud? Or are we just a little too comfortable with the status quo? Are we willing and ready to say, I am the Lord's servant, and so give our lives over to God to the point of ridicule, to the point of death? Do we seek to be active participants in the shalom, the restoration, the faithfulness of God? Or do we sit by on the sidelines and let other people take up the song? Because others will take up the song, as they have taken up the song for centuries. The Israelites singing after crossing the Red Sea. The psalmist singing after the Israelites returned from exile. Slaves singing songs of freedom while working in the fields. Ukrainian Christians singing hymns in a subway bomb shelter. Will we join them in singing? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Will you pray with me? And so, holy God, Give us the courage to lift our voices in song. To tell of a God who is turning the world around. Who is making all wrongs to be right. Who is upending the way we think things should work. Who is lifting up the lowly. Who uses the downtrodden, and the cast aside to do great things. Who says that the first shall be last? Who says that there is strength in weakness? 
who brings life out of death. Help us to be active participants in this bringing about of shalom, of peace and of justice. Where there is wrong, where there is pride and selfishness and an abuse of power, help us to speak up, to say this is not the way it is supposed to be. Give us the courage, O God, to lift our voices in song, singing of the one who has come, who is here, who is coming again, who is making all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.